Science Chatters. Hello and welcome to the Science Chatters podcast, the podcast from the Science Communication Unit at UWE Bristol. I'm Andrew Glester and with me today are... I'm Emma Wykamp. I'm co-director of the Science Communication Unit at UWE. And I'm Claire Wilkinson. I'm also the co-director of the Science Communication Unit at UWE. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for being with me. Well, sort of at a distance with me. I think people who are listening to the podcast will probably be fully aware of the, the lockdown that we're currently in due to the COVID-19 coronavirus. And probably those of you who listen to episode one will be wondering what sort of intervals we'll be having between episodes. And the plan is for us to have about six episodes over the 12 month period. Th- things have been slightly delayed, obviously. Quite a lot of things have been slightly delayed by this by this lockdown. But here we are with episode two. Episode one, I felt like there was a theme which I was very comfortable with. It was the Arctic. There is a theme for episode two. And I can't find a better... I'm hoping that, that either Emma or Claire will help me with this. But I can't find a better way of explaining this theme than Pooh and Wee. <laughs> I think that captures it, Andrew. Okay. I, I can't. I can't think of a way of explaining it without maybe the need to bleep out. Otherwise, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the best way to describe it. It is poor way, but it's not. It's there's hope in there. It's not all about waste. Um, <laughs> it's about what we can do with the waste. And from a science point of view and a science communication point of view, there's some very interesting things that we can do with that. And later in the podcast, we will be hearing from Dr. Ivona Gadja who is a postdoc researcher at the Bristol Bioenergy Centre at the Bristol Robotics Lab at UE Bristol. And she'll be talking to Chloe Russell, who is one of the students on the MSc in Science Communication here at UE Bristol. And also we'll be hearing from another student on the MSc in Science Communication, Jessica Howard, who is talking to Angeliki Savantoglu. And they're talking about we and poo in that order, but also talking about electricity and bears. So we could have said electricity and bears, couldn't we? That's... It's just not quite the same hook there, is it? So. No. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'd listen to a podcast that was called Science Chatters, Electricity and Bears. <laughs> it is I'd, intriguing. Yeah, it'd be inter- let's track the, um, from a science communication point of view, let's track how many lessons we get to this one compared to the other episodes, mm-hmm. whether the poo and we angle brings people in or not. Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to evaluate this. I think it's good to talk about these topics, you know. Yeah. It has serious, there are serious undertones as well, thinking yeah. about some of these things. So. Absolutely. Let's move on to uh, the first of our interviews, which is Angeliki Savantoglu, who is a PhD researcher here at UWE Bristol. And in the early days of my job at UWE, I was doing a seminar of PhD students um, talking about ways to write about their research. And Angeliki, well, very briefly described her research. She begins by looking for bear poo in the highlands of Greece and then finding the flies that have been involved with that bear poo so that she can study the migration of bears across Greece. Here, talking to Jessica Howard, is Angeliki Savantoglu. My PhD is kind of 
twofold. So what I do is I do a lot of uh, map modeling and I create habitat suitability maps. So I look at where where areas may be good for bears or really bad for bears. And then this is all done on the computer. And then because that's just a computer model and we never know how that's going to sort of translate into reality, I then take the research in Greece uh, where I do my field work and I collect data in Greece and I see whether they actually use the areas that we think they're using. And we are mainly focusing on wildlife corridors, so the, the areas between really good habitats that could be connecting them potentially. Yes, there are bears in Greece and everybody asks. Nobody really knows that. And um, there's about 500 of them. Um, they've been doing quite well. They've been increasing, but they are still highly protected. Yeah. So you're not actually looking at the bears themselves when you do research. Are you uh, searching for their poo, I believe? Yes. So my science is very glamorous, actually. Uh, I look for poo, which is what a lot of people are doing when they look for bears. Um Bears have quite a distinct scat and what you can do with the scat is just, you know, use it as a presence absence thing. So it's yes, it's there or no, it's not there. But you can also then collect the scat and analyze it in the lab and you can find out which bear it is and uh, go into sort of the molecular side and look into micro satellites, which, yeah, explains which bear it is. And maybe you can play around with finding out how many there are in in that area and things like that. Um, but... Scat is a little bit difficult to find, um, even though it's mahusive. And um, unfortunately for us, bears are, bears produce very big scat, but also bears have massive, massive ranges. So you end up having to scan areas, anything from sort of 200 kilometer squares to 20 kilometer squares, which is sort of like the smaller females will will have s- smaller home ranges, but the big males are they are in such vast areas. Your research now, um, you're looking at catching flies as well. Is that right? Absolutely. So, <laughs> what I actually do, which is because it's so difficult to find flies as humans, and we're not very good at spotting stuff in the wild, and especially if the weather is bad, you know, it can wash off and things like that. So, what we are trying to do, me and my supervisors, is replace the human volunteers and the human surveyors with flies. So the flies are disgusting and what they do is they eat scat um, or they feed on carcasses or, you know, they might even land on a live animal. And what you can then do is catch the flies instead. So put just uh, traps for flies out there and then collect these flies and bring them back in a, in a suitcase back in the UK. <laughs> a suitcase full of flies. Yes, yes. They love me in the customs, actually. Um, <laughs> yes, sorry, this is uh, the bit of my suitcase that has cat. This is the bit of my suitcase that has uh, flies. It's uh, it's very glamorous, all, all, all the stuff that I do. Yes, science is not always very pretty um so then i come back in the lab here and what you can actually do is you extract the dna any dna that comes out of the fly and you can target specifically the bear dna and you can track whether the they have been feeding on anything bear which then means that the bear was in that area and then you can still use it as a presence so instead of finding the bear poo you're just finding um flies that that have feasted on the poo exactly yes that's so really I make, clever i make really elaborate fly smoothies in the lab and then i cook them and then <laughs> there you go it's like a yes or a no 
and it does work. We've 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 got data that has shown that we can detect bears in the wild um, from flies, which is pretty amazing. It's as as far as sort of looking for needles in a haystack. It's it's pretty out there. <laughs> like it's a crazy concept. But it's a lot more effective and uh, low budget for finding the bears, I guess. That's what we are trying to um, discover. We don't know yet whether it's more effective because um, theoretically it could be, but it might just be that it's very difficult to locate the specific fly that ate the bear. So it's, you know, it's kind of a trial and error. And what we're trying to do is I'm doing, as I go to Greece, I every field season I will collect flies and I collect uh, scat. I do a scat survey in the same area and then we have we have basically something to compare it to something that people commonly do. We, we will find out. We really hope that it's something that people can either replace their surveys with or combine surveys with because it's really, really low effort in terms of what you're doing in the field. It's extremely, you know, extremely easy to do. Anyone can set up a, a trap, which then means that you can send teams of volunteers and never really worry about the, the kind of data that comes back to you and whether you can trust it or not because actually what the bulk of the work is is the lab analysis. Has anyone else ever done this before with bears or are you the first one to be using flies and poo? As far as I'm aware not for bears yet. There have been studies looking at more tropical areas and tro- tropical uh, animals mainly mammals but no I'm, I'm I think I'm focusing I'm the only one focusing on bears and so far I've been looking at brown bears in Greece but I got a grant last year and that allows for some sample collection, not by me, but by teams that are already in the in these countries from uh, Cambodia and from Ecuador. So in Cambodia, they have sand bears and they also have uh, Asiatic black bears. And we can look at that as well. And then in, in Ecuador, they have Andean bears or the spectacle bear. So these are much more elusive animals, a lot harder to find. And we really hope that we have some good results there because then um, that will allow people to actually be able to find whether these bears use the areas that they think they're using. So far, they are really struggling to monitor these, these species. So it's quite a promising work, I hope. That sounds like a fascinating technique, especially if it can be applied across other species as well. What (laughs) is the problem with conservation of bears? Because I know you were talking about... um, their habitats and it becoming more fragmented over time what is the issue well this is this is a common issue really in in like today's world uh, we are developing as humans we are developing our networks everywhere roads new buildings in the middle of nowhere so we are cutting down habitat we, we are decreasing it in size but mainly what we're doing is we are chopping it in bits so the sort of future of conservation as it stands until people decide to kind of withdraw from some areas, is to make sure that at least there are ways of of these animals to cross between these fragmented um, pieces of land. Sometimes that involves just, you know, um, bridges over roads, but sometimes it's vast areas of farming in the middle of two really good um, forest areas. So there's always ways to work around it and every single animal will have a different way of coping with fragmentation. Bears seem to be a bit more to- more tolerant than some of the other large carnivores that we have in Europe. But this is this is a very common problem at the moment with, with most, most areas in the world, most animals in the world, uh, their habitats are just being a bit chopped down and just finding a way of coping with it 
until we can we can actually give them the area the way it was before. We can go full rewilding and let them just roam. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Are there any challenges to setting up um, conservation like strategies like that, like providing corridors and protecting corridors for them? Mm, well, I guess every country is different. In Greece, unfortunately, there isn't a lot of money for conservation, especially at the moment. But these solutions, depending on the, the type of fragmentation, sometimes these solutions are quite easy. What is quite challenging is that we are working with an apex predator, a large carnivore, and people are not always as kind of welcoming <laughs> as, as they are with other animals. So when you see an increase in these carnivores, you can't just go, yeah, we've, we've done it, you know, we've conserved, <laughs> let's move to another species. And that would be amazing, but actually it's not really what happens and what does happen is these animals increase in numbers and then human wildlife conflict increases because you know bears and and other carnivores as well but bears have this unique sort of feeding behavior they are omnivores they feed on absolutely anything so they will raid crops they will um, kill some sheep every now and then they will um, destroy beehives so it's more the sort of human wildlife uh, conflict area that needs to be we need to focus on and as they increase in numbers and the habitats get fragmented and they move into different areas sometimes they move into areas that they haven't been before so people are not very used to dealing with them so it's more about making sure that you bulletproof the system before it needs help so you want the people to be able to um cope with with bears in their in their land or coping with more bears in their their land when they used to have two they can have 10 and they can still cope with it um before the the bears actually increase so making sure that farmers have very good dogs for example or good fences maybe some electric fences there's plenty of ways of um dealing with damages and preventing damages but it's just getting there before um before these animals colonize these new areas and and start creating problems yeah do you know if anyone is working with um like community engagement or anything in northern greece to uh talk to the community about them so that they know what to expect yes yes there are um there are two two ngos in greece and they're doing amazing work um both of them do quite a lot of work with uh, um providing livestock guarding dogs, I think they call them, which is basically big sheepdog. Um, and we have this um, sp- specific pedigree um, dog breed in Greece that's called Greek sheepdog, very inventive name. Um, and they are really, really large dogs and they have really short uh, tails, I guess. And I, I, most of them, not all of them, but some of them have really short tails. Some of them are just the result of... Um, farmers cutting them to prevent wolves catching them um, catching catching the tails they also have really big necks so they have like extra skin on their neck because wolves attack them on the necks so they are just dogs that have been evolved to or bred I guess to uh, deal with big carnivores around and there are NGOs that breed these dogs and then give them to farmers so there's a really good system with that there is um quite a good system with making sure that damages are being compensated. Not, it doesn't always happen and sometimes it's really hard to prove that the damage in your field is from one of the predators or, or, or in your crop or in your livestock is from from a predator rather than 
you know, something died or, you know, broke from the wind or something like that. Um, but there are, there is a compensation system. They do try and go to different villages and talk to farmers. They do a lot of surveys, trying to find out what exactly are the problems. Some places have more problems with beehives. Some places have more problems with livestock. Um, but people are generally a bit more tolerant of bears than they are of, say, wolves. I don't know why exactly, because bears do just as much damage, but maybe there are less of them at the moment. So maybe the damage is not as evident. Or there are more friendly bear cartoons than friendly wolf cartoons uh, in the absolutely. world. <laughs> yes, that is also possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're someone who's very interested in what bears get up to in the woods. That's thrilling. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, how did you get into that area of research? To be honest with you, I, I, I grew up in the area where I'm working on at the moment. Um, so I knew the area very well and I was always very, uh, very connected with this area emotionally, I guess. But I think I, I, I do really like being in the forest and, and sort of exploring what is there. And then when I finally came to the UK and studied and started thinking about what I really, really wanted to do, I was pretty sure that I wanted to work with large carnivores. And I think possibly 90% of everyone who ever studied conservation wanted to work with large, large carnivores. Um, so it sounded like a bit of a far-fetched dream back then. But then I did my placement and I, I was very adamant that I wanted to work with bears and wolves. So I started sending emails to these different organizations um, in Greece and saying, I really want to do this project. Can I please come and do it for you for free? And one of them said yes. And it was amazing. And I spent a year on the mountain just training myself to look for bear poo and rediscovering the mountain where I grew up um, and seeing it from the more conservation and the more biology kind of um, survey or side. And it was just fascinating and I, I don't think I could ever go back. It just completely took me in and fe I fell in love with it even more. So then I came back for my third year and it was pretty clear. So I kind of turned all of my assignments to be things to do with bears. And then I did my dissertation on bears and then I just would not stop talking about it. Um, when I finished, <laughs> I really, I want to do a PhD on bears, I want to do a PhD on So I think they just, at some point, they were like, just give her a PhD so that she can just stop talking about it all the time. And they did, and I'm still talking about it. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know who won there. But, I think they made yes. the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I've been very lucky. It's not very easy to work with, with large carnivores, and it's not something that many people get to do. A lot of people just, you know, really want to do it and then they never really find the position. They can't really get into the into the system, so to say, like get into the network and then start start kind of rooting in there. So I feel very, very, very happy to be able to do this. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing dream come true. I was really quite impressed in that interview with the persistence that Angeliki shows in getting to grips with her subject area in figuring out how she's going to develop work with bears and the persistence needed to get involved in a PhD in this subject area. You know, spending a year tracking bears as a volunteer, going back to university, telling everybody that I'm fascinated with bears, we need to study bears. I really was, was taken by that passion 
that she shows within that interview. I really liked that side of it as well. And for me, um, there was almost kind of a clash there between um, or a happy coincidence there between this idea of sort of local knowledge um, and what that can bring to scientific research and then pursuing that with a PhD. So in some senses, it was a lovely surprise to find out later in the interview that so much of this had emerged from her sort of personal love of the environment that she was growing up in. And then she was able to develop her own scientific expertise um, through her degree and her studies overseas and then return to um, the environment that she loved and the animals that she was really fascinated and interested in and, and build this PhD project. So I was really interested in that idea of the kind of citizen in the scientist coming through in that research area. Um, and also the way that actually what she was doing itself could really easily be adapted into other research projects in the future. Because there's the citizen in the science, but there's also the scientist then trying to communicate with the people who live in that area and that community mm. um, and I thought that was really interesting I think it's quite obvious to me why people like bears more than wolves and are more um, <laughs> you know it might well be completely irrational and driven by drama narratives rather than the science but I'd rather hug I don't know about you I'm, I'm less of a dog person than maybe some people are but I'd rather hug a bear than a wolf I think I'd yeah. still be a bit alarmed if I find a bear outside my house, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> but yeah, that, that kind of way in which um, animals take on a particular character to people um, and also I guess how used to you are in terms of dealing with them in your local environments. I think they were interesting things that came through. I would not want to hug a bear. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, have, I have certainly been on horseback and seen bears uh, in the past. <laughs> I haven't been all that up close and personal with them, but I've been reasonably close uh, and not very personal with them. <laughs> um, so I, I do, I, I, I do think that the, the communication, the communication issues that she discusses are, are really interesting ones and, and really highlight the, the, the need for the researcher to engage with the community and mm. uh, to understand the community's concerns, but to also think about, how you then tell the community about um, the findings and the concerns that, that you as a scientist and conservationist may have. I have also seen wolves um, and I would agree with you, Andrew, that I would probably be more comfortable with a bear than a wolf <laughs> at a distance. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be anywhere near a wolf. <laughs> but yeah, I think, uh, I think there are certainly differences that come across through our cultural perceptions and, and yeah, all the stories of, that children get read are about the evil wolf um, and wolves certainly get a, a really bad press um, from quite an early age uh, in our psyche so yeah I think I've been seeing a few um, of the more recent wildlife documentaries from the BBC Natural History Unit particularly I think they're seeing a different side to wolves obviously the pack behavior of wolves is, is particularly fascinating and um, I, yeah I'm being a bit silly when I say I'd like to to hug a bear it, it's, it's more the huge amount of fur that would just be quite nice I think if they were you know I'm thinking of gentle Ben really not the bears in the wild oh, to be honest you've got Teddy Roosevelt to to blame for that um <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> bears got a really nice press once teddy bears appeared on the market yeah. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't watch the um was it the revenant the leonardo dicaprio oscar winning film that has a very graphic bear attack scene within it so okay. you may you may feel differently if you watch that but obviously yeah. that's a fictionalized account yes. i think it does contrast um i i think the corridor idea i mean um, in the UK, we might see a corridor for hedgehogs yeah. <laughs> um, that we're avoiding. It's it's a very different concept. But I was reminded of a student project. I was involved in marking a, a post presentation for the public for a couple of years ago, and she was doing some fascinating work with um, communities in South Africa around issues like waste disposal, um, how they protected their their gardens from a safety perspective from the predators that are around them locally. Um, and how they managed that, it was just part of their daily lives. So I think in terms of this particular PhD, the work's obviously happening in terms of maybe working with some of the community engagement side of things and NGOs. But I think there's also some really fascinating research opportunities talking to local citizens and communities around how they are kind of considering some of these risks in their everyday behaviour. And also obviously protecting, protecting the species and the animals that are involved. And had you thought about flies before, Emma, in that context, <laughs> using flies to track bears? <laughs> no, um, I, but, but fly, I have encountered other research where um, people have been looking at, at flies to understand mm. different things about decomposition and so forth. So yeah. I think flies are used in research quite a bit, but I uh, have to say the prospect of bringing flies <laughs> back in your suitcase <laughs> is a little bit disturbing. <laughs> It's probably worth saying this will have all gone through very stringent procedures. It's not coming back in her holiday luggage or, or anything like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, th I imagine so. I can't imagine you can just bring flies back. Um, they'll probably have to go into quarantine anyway if you did bring them back. So uh, that's the poo covered. Let's move on to the we. Another student on the MSc in Science Communication here at UE Bristol is Chloe Russell. Chloe spoke to Dr. Ivona Gadger who is a postdoc researcher based at the Bristol Robotics Lab at UE Bristol on the Frenchy campus. And Ivona is a researcher as part of the Urintricity project. Urintricity is a project which is seeking to and succeeding in producing electricity from urine. Yes, Urentricity, it's, it's the name of the project. It was split into phases because we work on the more or less two years basis per phase. Currently, we are on the phase four. Who founded the project and found the link between urine and electricity? The project Urentricity is funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They are funding uh, lots of sanitation projects all around the world. And this is themed around reinventing the toilet. Oh. So finding new solutions to develop new toilet systems that would be self-sustainable using as off the grid off the grid clean safe toilets and the link between urine and electricity comes from the microbial fuel cells which generate electricity from wastewater or wow. organic waste as such urine is one of the wastes that could be utilized in in the system how do you turn the waste product into electricity is it a long process it's uh, performed in the fuel cells so 
uh, fuel cells that uh, we use, they're called microbial fuel cells. Microbial because there are microbes, bacteria, uh, transforming the energy locked in organic matter into electric current and it's wow. done direct, directly. So we don't convert it into a biogas and then electricity. It's just direct electricity conversion. Uh, so it's generation of electric current from organic matter directly. Wow. You do it in a lab, don't you? Yes, we've got our uh, wet lab set up, Bristol uh, Robotic Laboratory in, in Bristol on French, French campus. We've got our own sensor there called the Bristol Bioenergy Sensor that um, performs that kind of work. How many people are involved in the project? We've got uh, researchers, our a theme leader, so it's uh, Professor Yanis Europoros. Yanis developed uh, microbial fuel cells work with Professor John Greenman at UWE uh, for a number of years. And it's thanks to them that they set up the Bristol Bioenergy Center mm. and they redeveloped that uh, theme and um, get the projects going. Excellent. What's your role in the project? I'm one of the researchers. And um, we're looking into uh, developing microbial fuel cells as uh, energy converters um, to get the electricity uh, out of waste such as urine. Wow. can't even imagine finding the research to even do this project. It's a really amazing thing what you're doing. Is there past research that you can look at as inspiration yes. to go forward? Is there? Yes, actually, actually, this this technology is uh, over hundred years old. You're it's kidding. been, <laughs> yes, microbial cells been known for a number of years. Uh, they've been uh, discovered by uh, a researcher called Michael Potter okay. uh, at the University of Durham in 1911. Wow! And he discovered that bacteria get this. Um, ability to convert organics into into electrons and God. since then number of researchers was trying to pursue that theme uh, for example in the 70s and 60s NASA tried to develop this way of uh, utilizing it into space missions you're kidding that's amazing is it always organic uh Yes, it's basically based on uh, natural metabolism of um, living organisms that extract energy from uh, organics, from food, you know. Can you do it from animals? Uh, yes, it can be any sort of organic waste. Okay. It can be wastewater from a wastewater treatment plant. Uh, it can be um, animal urine. It can be composting waste matter. Yeah. And so it can be compost, can be rotten fruit or even freshly cut grass. Anything that decomposes can be used as a source of energy. And how did your career lead into this? My background is in biology. I actually did my PhD here in UE okay. in microbial fuel cell technology. Wow, how was that? That was really good. I really enjoyed my, my time here at UE um, in Bristol. And I really liked the theme of the work, yeah. which is basically uh, almost the same as I'm doing now. I just developed microbial fuel cell to generate electricity from wastewater or just general organic waste. Mm. Now we're doing basically the same, just focusing on 
uh, urine. Mm. I read online that it's been used for Glastonbury. We try to bring this technology to real world. Uh, we don't want to develop something that just stays in the lab. We would like to really show that this can be developed into something real. And that's one of the objectives of the Urine Trustee Project funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It needs to become a technology that it can be developed and used in the real world, in real setting. So Glastonbury, where there's a huge amount of waste being collected, and for example, pee, that's a perfect, opportunity to present our technology, do our outreach, just show that this is possible and also probably, we hope, to inspire people about the theme of sustainability, recovery and, you know, renewable sources of energy. So we've been in Glastonbury for a number of years now. Uh, we are setting up over there uh, our, what we call P-Power urinals. Urine is being connected to our system and then the light is being operated just purely on on uh, human urine the lights illuminate the uh, urinals okay. um, inside and outside the structures but the bigger picture of that is to show that this is possible off the grid and it could be used in remote locations where the energy is not easily accessible areas of the world that are lacking sanitation infrastructure and reliable electricity access. And how's that going? Our first P-Power field trial was installed at girls' secondary school in Western Uganda Ooh. in July 2017. It was lighting up the toilet block for the students to use at nighttime. It was a girls' boarding school and they didn't have access to the toilet at night because it was unlit, so it was unsafe. Uh, however, um, with the system, now they um, they had um, lights throughout the night. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, yes, that was quite a successful trial in, uh, for that project. Was it these vulnerable situations that really was the inspiration of creating this project? Yes, that's exactly it. That's um, very well captured. Um, your interesting project is themed primarily around that, is to give people who don't have the access to clean sanitation technologies and electricity to give them access to that in the same time. It's amazing that you're doing that. So it's it's a really important project. I think I think in, in general scheme of things, it's... Um, it's quite important and um, we are only at the beginning of our exploration of what can be done. So not only the electricity can be extracted, we can extract different things like um, extract nutrients uh, or water from the waste stream that is being wow. treated. We hope that we can treat the waste and extract necessary uh, nutrients for biofertilizers, for example, or for disinfectants. If we could extract the uh, disinfectant while we generate electricity, um, that would be something really important because that would be used for cleaning the facilities. That could be a self-sustainable treatment. So I think there's still a lot 
to achieve and that's why it's so exciting. Could you, could you create enough energy to drive a car? <laughs> we hope one day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a plane. Oh, that would be so awesome. <laughs> well, Ivonia, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for finding the time. Well, this is um, a project I've come across before because at UI, one of the, the little sort of pea power uh, labs, I guess you'd say, one of the urinals used to actually be just outside our offices in a courtyard um, and attract a lot of interest and uh, attention when they were trialling the particular approach before they went off to festivals such as Glastonbury. So um, it's got quite a long history, this particular piece of work. And I think one of the really nice things in the interview that came through was that the technology for this was actually, um, or the, the scientific techniques behind it was actually discovered kind of 100 years ago. And it's taken so much time for the real impact of that, the actual development of this technology to come through. So at the moment, so many researchers are focusing on, you know, the impact of their research. We know that that can be a really, really long, extensive period of time before sometimes some of those impacts show. Um, and I thought that was really sort of demonstrated with this particular particular piece and the real impacts now that some of this technology is able to have both here in the UK and probably even more importantly um, overseas. So yeah I think that the long history of work on microbial fuel cells was a little bit of a surprise to me although I did actually encounter work in this area as an undergraduate um, in chemistry because there was an interest in this subject in the department I was working in at, at the time. So I think it, you know it really does demonstrate how long it can take to develop tools that ultimately are solving real world problems and in this case I think one of the things that struck me is is they're really interested in trying to find ways to develop technologies that might help in conflict areas or areas where access to electricity is quite limited and so you've got a, a sort of essentially a, a tool or a technique that you can use to produce energy locally which I think is a, a really interesting facet of this particular project. And I think in terms of how they're sharing this work and also trialling it, going to festivals and events like Glastonbury, um, that plays an important part in the scientific research itself. But I imagine it could almost, you know, make it appear like a little bit tokenistic in some way. It's really important that the researchers are also there at that event, which I know, I know they go along, they share, they talk about the work so that people understand it is having real world impact. Um, they use the example of a particular boarding school in the interview. It's being trialled and used in refugee camps in terms of using it at events such as that. Could appear almost a little bit frivolous. Actually, is having a really significant impact on trialling that technology, improving it and making it work in situations where it is absolutely vital. It really does highlight nicely the importance of the researchers being there, being able mm. to talk about their research, being able to engage with the public. And yet at the same time, you're at a big event. It's actually probably in many ways quite like a refugee camp in terms of uh, <laughs> the, scale, the, well, the scale, maybe not, but in terms of the you know people in tents using limited yeah. um, range of facilities and so forth. Uh, so you've kind of got a, a microcosm there, a real, a real world practical opportunity mm. to collect data. And yet at the same time, you've got a nice opportunity to take your research out there and talk about it with people. Before I moved to Bristol, and I heard the words Bristol Robotics Lab, I have to say, I didn't think that in Bristol Robotics Lab, there'd be people working on getting electricity out of urine and human waste and, and animal waste. And I, I, that's a really, really interesting side to robotics that we just don't think about. I, you know, I'm a science fiction nut, so I always think about mm. um, robots in a particular way. 
but to to hear about this amazing work that's going on which has this real world impact um it's just brilliant isn't it Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a whole range of work um, that they're doing in the robotics lab that probably wouldn't necessarily have crossed people's mind. Um, it isn't only about the sort of perception of robotics you might get in science fiction or in you know, a robotic hoover that might be going around your home or those kinds of situations. Um, going back to flies, I think at one point there was a particular technology that they were working on that was using um, insects actually to generate generate power and electricity. So. Um, again, I think the Robots Lab uh, does an awful lot to talk to people about the work that they're doing and also engage with communities that are relevant, for instance, in some of the health technologies that they're involved in. But probably it is a bit beyond what people might expect at face value for a, for a robot and what it might involve. I would imagine since COVID-19 is happening, that at present with more and more older people being socially isolated, um, potentially there are some gaps that some of the technologies that they're working on could really be filling. If we think about technologies to communicate alone, we're seeing ways that people are adapting and using those. But certainly some of the things that they're developing around care, for instance, whilst there might be all sorts of reasons why we want to use our families and caregivers um, and wider community support um, in situations such as this, where there's actually a risk of people going into homes, potentially there are developments there that might become even more relevant, I guess, in the future. Mm. I'm thinking particularly because back in the day on my own podcast, The Cosmic Shed, I interviewed some researchers at Bristol Robotics Lab about some um, applications they were doing for people who were living alone with health needs. And it was things like um, the robots would monitor the temperature in the room. So if there was a change in the temperature, then that would alert a central place where people could then make sure that everything was okay because the temperature could change because the heating hasn't come on or because the person's not moving around as much as they should have been and being able to monitor that at a distance using robotics yeah can totally see how that would be useful in this scenario absolutely and i think the other thing about kind of good research in this area is also making sure that it's socially acceptable and ethically considered etc and i know that's something particularly with professor alan winfield's work um, connected to our unit that's something they're really conscious and aware of sounds like that might be another topic for a future episode of science chatters to me it sounds like it might be yeah i'm sure there's many researchers that can talk about it much better than i can so. <laughs> <laughs> i look forward to that one and i hope you have enjoyed listening to this episode of Science Chatters. Thank you very much to Angeliki Savantoglu, Dr. Ivona Gadja, and Jessica Howard and Chloe Russell for joining us and bringing us those wonderful interviews. And thank you very much indeed to Emma and Claire. Thanks, and Andrew. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back in a, probably two months with another episode of Science Chatters. Oh, just before we go, you might have noticed that we've got a new logo. That was designed rather wonderfully by Jess Howard. The very same Jess Howard who brought us that interview with Angeli Key Savantoglu earlier in the episode. Thanks, Jess. Science Chatters. <laughs>